Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you here. Um, it really is. I'll wait for my family to stop whispering. <laughs> I've always wanted to. Uh, I know my family, so I understand. It's necessary. Today we'll be in uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter uh, 7. Verses uh, 24 to, to the end of the chapter, 24 to 29, if you want to turn your Bibles to that passage. As I was preparing this message, I recalled, I think it was probably on NPR that I heard this story, and uh, I had to do a little bit of research with my uh, almost non-existent uh, <coughs> cell phone signal at home, but with a lot of patience, I was able to confirm that my memory was mostly correct. In 1983, the Becker Quarry in Willington, Connecticut began making concrete contaminated with a mineral called pyrotite. Pyrotite's a naturally occurring mineral, but it reacts with water and air and causes concrete to crack and crumble. Fortunately, if you're selling the bad concrete, and unfortunately, if you're buying the bad concrete, the sy symptoms don't show for uh, about 10 to 20 years. So maybe the best advice this morning is don't buy a home around Willington, Connecticut, if it was built in 1983. But actually, that's not enough advice. The Becker Quarry continued to produce the faulty concrete until 2017 a long time. That's a lot of home foundations with faulty concrete. Experts say that as many as 34,000 homes were constructed with this bad concrete and now have bad foundations. The cost to repair or replace, which is really what's required, the bad foundation is more than most of the homes are worth and more than most can afford. One family that could afford it, but barely, cost them $325,000 to raise the home, remove the bad concrete, and replace the foundation with good concrete. So what's a home worth with a bad foundation? I'm not an engineer, a contractor, or a real estate agent, but I would guess that a home with a bad foundation is probably worth less, worth less than the materials it's made from. A stable, sound, and steady foundation is essential not only in home building, but in body building as well, the building up of the church into maturity. And the church matures only as her components, you and I, mature together. Today's parable, as well as last week's, which was the Good Samaritan, and I don't remember if I made this clear last week, and since I might forget, I'll go ahead and include next week's. Next week, we're going to take a look at the parables of counting the cost, the parables of the tower builder and the warrior king. These parables belong to the category of parables of discipleship. Briefly, discipleship refers to the manner in which followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to live. Discipleship is the practice of the Christian faith unto maturity. 
Some believe that discipleship is optional, that it would be nice if we would all become disciples, but it's really some kind of higher level, some kind of next tier of Christianity. Some shy away from discipleship altogether because they don't know how to reconcile it with the gospel of grace. Some avoid it because discipleship is hard to measure. It's hard to quantify. The church can count and report decisions made for Christ. We can keep records of giving. We can keep records of baptism. We can keep statistics and data on church membership. But discipleship defies this kind of data analysis. Our culture today really lacks meaningful parallels to the biblical to the ancient idea of discipleship. The closest example I can think of would be the relationship between an apprentice learning a trade and his master or his teacher, the one teaching him that trade. An apprentice is committed to his mentor and follows his instructions. In the first century, this pattern was followed in many more contexts other than learning a trade. Traveling teachers of religion and philosophy were not uncommon if you wanted to learn if you wanted to be a student you would ask to follow him sometimes you would pay a fee sometimes you'd simply contribute your resources to meet the needs of the group but you would follow the teacher and he would impart his wisdom to you to his disciples and you would imitate him the twist that Jesus puts on this convention, and we see it especially in his closest disciples, is that they were called by him. That's the twist Jesus puts on this ancient convention of discipleship. In reality, we know that all of Jesus' disciples are called. And if he has called you, then Jesus wants you to hear his words and to act on them as his disciples. I'll say it up front. The main point and the application of this parable is that if you are a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus will be your teacher. It is him to whom you are attached. It is him you follow. It is him whom you imitate. In the New Testament, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount which we find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Mount lays out both widely and very deeply the kind of people that disciples of Jesus are supposed to be. In fact, the kind of people they will be if they are following Jesus for the right reasons. Most of you are probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount and may have an image of Jesus preaching to a crowd, to a multitude, but if you look carefully at how this begins in Matthew chapter 5, it starts as an address to his disciples. In fact, it seems that Jesus was trying to escape the crowds to have a private moment with his disciples. But by the time the sermon ends, we learn that the crowds are, are there again, close enough to hear and to be amazed at the authority with which Jesus taught. The parable of the two builders, the first parable in Matthew, 
occurs at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount and serves as a conclusion and a challenge for all who are listening, even us. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? We know the song. The foolish man built his house upon the and the rains came down and the yeah and the house on the rock but the house on the sand went yeah but i'll read it just in case everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell, and great was its fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. So we're going to look at the house that lasts, the house that falls, and the storm that comes. First of all, the house that lasts. The builder of the house that stands is a wise man and corresponds to the one who hears and acts on Jesus' words. Statements like this by Jesus are concerning to some because they might seem to suggest that the dying are rescued by their works, that somehow Jesus' teaching is in conflict with the teaching of salvation by grace through faith. If that is what a text like this means, then it would be in opposition with much of the rest of the New Testament, where the clear teaching is that Jesus' faithfulness, not our own, saves us. If, however, we look closely at this teaching of Jesus, we'll see that there is no conflict at all. I don't want to overanalyze this parable, but notice carefully, the wise man doesn't become wise by building a house on rock. Right. He builds his house on rock because he is wise. In fact, the immediate context of this parable teaches us something very similar. Verses 15 to 20 tell us this, that good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. A fig tree doesn't become a fig tree when it bears figs, but bears figs because it is a fig tree. The bearing of fruit is according to the nature of the tree. Now, Jesus' point is that false prophets can be recognized by their fruit. They may claim to be a grapevine, but if they bear thorns, they are not what they claim to be. In our parable, Obedience to Jesus' words do not build the foundation, 
but, uh, but is an indication that the foundation is already sound. The call to hear and to act is nothing new in the Bible. In fact, the command to hear is the most frequently occurring commandment in the Old Testament and in all of the Bible. For the disciples of Jesus, hearing and acting rises out of a heart that has been transformed. Hearing and acting are evidence of wisdom. They are a sign of a solid foundation. But notice it's not just any hearing and acting. It's hearing and acting upon the words of Jesus. We have many voices fighting for our hearing and calling for our action. Some are hard to ignore because as outrageous as they are, they are loud and they are continuous. And you can't escape them. Maybe if you turn off your TV and your phone Mm -hmm. (laughs) and your computer, you can escape them momentarily. Others are even harder to ignore because they bear the name of Jesus. And we might even hear them at church or through people who claim to represent Jesus, maybe even a preacher. I urge you again, uh, we talked about this, I think, when, we just, when I preached through Philippians in Philippians chapter 4. Don't be misled by the use of the word Christian as an adjective. Whatever is vying for your hearing and your action, compare it to Jesus. Compare it to his life. Compare it to his teaching before you act. So to summarize the house that stands, it stands because the builder is wise. And the person who is wise will hear the words of Jesus and act on them. Now let's look at the house that falls. Likewise, hearing Jesus' words but not obeying does not deteriorate the foundation, but is an indication that the foundation is not there in the first place. Jesus' point is that only a fool would hear this message and not act. Imagine a community where the poor the mournful, the meek, where the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, where the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted are blessed. Where followers of Jesus preserve and illuminate the world around them. A community where greatness is measured not by power or by wealth, but by obedience. Where not only is there no murder, no adultery, but there's neither hate nor lust. Where promises are kept, where enemies are loved where generosity arises out of a pure heart and humility, 
Imagine a community where God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven, where there is a culture of forgiveness, where the only treasures that last are the kinds of treasures accumulated. A place where worry gives way to the pursuit of God's kingdom and his righteousness. A place where hypocrisy ceases. A place where a good father gives good gifts. But many hear and don't act. Jesus wraps up this sermon that I just summarized by telling us that the gate to the kingdom is narrow and that it's difficult and that few find it. He tells us that there are false teachers who want to lead us away and astray about these things. He tells us that there are pretenders whose actions may look right, whose actions may even be powerful, but that these pretenders are not even known by Jesus. Hearing alone is not enough. Acting alone can be misleading. The fool hears but does not act on the words of Jesus. This does not make him or her a fool, but is the fruit of foolishness. This house with no foundation will not stand. Now, what will it not stand? Let's take a look at the storm. What does the storm represent? The rain, the wind, the flood. Some say that it only represents final judgment. And I think this is true. Many of Jesus' parables deal with this final judgment idea where it's the separation of the sheep from the goats, the good fish from the bad fish, the wheat from the weeds. And I think that's part of what's going on here. But I think there's more. What encouragement would it be if we don't know if our faith will withstand the test until the very end when it's too late to do anything about it? So I think there's a more immediate reference than just final judgment. It seems to me that what Jesus is saying in this parable is that a devotion and commitment to him that can withstand the present, the temporal storms, is the kind of commitment and the kind of devotion that will withstand the final judgment as well. The storm, the rain, the wind, the flood then, is anything that would cause our devotion and commitment to Jesus to fall or to fail unless it has a sure and firm foundation. And I don't know what those things are for you. I'm not entirely sure I know what they are for me. It could be affliction. Or it could be comfort. That kind of storm could be poverty, 
or it could be wealth. It could be sickness, or it can even be health. It could be immorality, or it could be moralism. It could be barrenness, or it could be children. It could be loneliness, or it could be relationships. Do you see? It could be obscurity, or it could be popularity. The church as a whole faces the same challenge that we do individually. Some churches die because no one comes. Some die because everyone comes. Some struggle because their building is too old and too small. Other churches struggle because their building is too new and too large and too expensive. Some, church, some churches struggle because its members are poor. Some struggle because its members are rich. It's not the same for all of us. And it's not even the same for us individually all the time. Just like you and just like me, the church demonstrates its firm foundation by withstanding the storm, the rain, the wind, the flood. Disciples of Jesus are commissioned by Jesus to make disciples. Notice they're not commissioned to collect decisions. They're not commissioned to make converts. They are commissioned to make disciples. And again, the struggle is how do you measure it? We immediately want, um, we want numbers. We want data. We want statistics. Discipleship defies that search. But it is our task. It's not a program, though you can call a church program a discipleship program. Nothing wrong with that at all. Just don't get confused. Some churches even have a pastor of discipleship. But ultimately, it's not a program. It's not even a ministry of the church. But it's the church's essential mission. However many ministries your church has, all of them should be part of the larger task of making disciples. And this mission of making disciples by disciples is carried out not by our own intelligence, not by our ingenuity or creativity, though I would say be smart, be creative, but those aren't the foundation. The mission is carried out because Jesus is our firm foundation. He is the very embodiment of wisdom. Disciples of Jesus hear and act and make disciples, not to strengthen their foundation, but because their foundation is strong. And if you find that your house is falling, 
or has already fallen. The good news is that you don't have to repair it. Even if you tried, the concrete, despite initial appearances, is contaminated and will neither withstand the storm nor stand the test of time. If you find that your house is falling or has already fallen, Jesus offers you not repair, but transformation, new creation. It's free to you, but it costs him everything. And he's calling. He's calling you to come to him. And I would encourage you to answer this call. Hear his words. Discern his voice above all the others. Listen and act upon what looks and upon what sounds like Jesus. And if it doesn't pass that test, ignore it. Get rid of it. Turn it off. And listen to his voice somewhere else. I think you'll find it because he wants us to hear him. Would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we are often confused about what's going on in the world. Sometimes we're perplexed why you act in some ways and don't act in others. And sometimes things just don't make sense to us. Lord, I pray that amidst the confusion and the frustration that you would help us to hear your voice. that we would follow you so closely, that we would know you so intimately, that we could hear your voice from far, far away. But I pray, Lord, that we would do far more than just hear your voice. Because detecting that you are speaking is only half of what you've called us to do. You've also called us to act. And Father, acting upon your words takes great courage and great humility and wisdom beyond what we have. But we know that for those you have called, for those who have answered that call to follow you, not for displays of power, not for what we can get out of it. But because you are the only one who can transform us, you are the only one who can restore in us the image in which we were created, that we might again be 
what you created us to be. Move us to act. Lord, help us to be intelligent and creative about this, but not to depend upon our own abilities. That everything we do as individuals and as a church seeking to follow you, disciples making disciples, would be empowered by you. That our house would rest on a firm foundation. That the nations might praise you and give you glory. That all would come to know of your great, great mercy that you withhold from no one who seeks it. Be patient with us. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to those around us that we might be a community of grace and forgiveness, that your church would embody all the things that you laid out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. That we would know you and that we could pay, play a part in making you known. Do it in a way that no one gets the glory except for you. We look forward to the work that you will do. We're thankful for what you are doing and for what you have done. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.